evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri and we all know Laura McKillop by now. I hope, to, hope you do anyway. Um, firstly, we'd like to start tonight by thanking our um, sponsor of the Dog Talk Live Q&A Enduro, High Energy Food for Working Dogs with Rural Kangaroo Meat. And um, tonight we're lucky enough to be speaking with Dave Motley from Motley Telfies, who will be picking what he thinks is the best question from our live viewers and I'll win a bag of Enduro Plus. Hey Dave, how are you going? Hi guys, how are you? Yeah, well, thank you. And yourself? That's good. Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, that's good. Dave, just before we um, hook in tonight, um, just want to uh, actually give our listeners out there a bit of a, or give ourselves a bit of a plug. Um, if you guys um, notice that Laura and I actually have signed up to um, do one step forward with the Black Dog Institute, um, and we're just going to encourage as many people as we can to jump on board for a great cause. If um, it's not talking with your wallets, how about you talk with your feet and get on board and um, you know, put something together for a great cause. So Dave, tell us a bit about yourself and your family, what you're from and uh, what you do for work and stuff. Yeah, well, just quickly on that, Dan, Jackie only spoke about that the other night that we were going to sign up to that and uh, have a bit of a family crack at that. So um, hopefully we can do our bit. That's yeah, awesome. Well, Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing you guys have started. Um, you know, my family, we're, Jackie's been married for sort of 20 years now and um, she's a nurse manager in town and um, I've been managing this block where I'm here for 18 years, um, sort of northwestern England, New South Wales, central New South Wales and um, grew up mudgy and, you know, on a bit of a farm and then went away when I left school to the Northern Territory and did a couple of years up there and Newcastle waters working, you know, big mobs of cattle up to three or four thousand at times and come back sort of south and, and worked on sheep places and then got into dogs and, um, you know, Ejilabra, assistant manager there and then manager here now. And uh, we've got a block at Brewarina where we're running around a thousand ewes. And so between this and this is about 15,000 sheep here now into the spring and a couple of hundred cattle. So between that and our own, it sort of keeps us busy and, and that's where the dogs come into it, I guess, looking after the, all those livestock. Did you um, use dogs much when you were up north? No, there was no dogs at all up there at that stage. Um, we worked for a pretty solid uh, head stockman. That there was some pretty strict rules written on the side of the caravan, and they were adhered to rain, hail, or shine. So um, no, we didn't. Um, you know, everything everything was horseback and it was very old-fashioned camp um, and really I don't think that, you know, in our system dogs would have been difficult. We just sort of weren't set up for dogs at that point. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, like a few others um, we've spoken with before, mate, we've had a long association with horses. Um, you've had a bit of association with horses yourself? Yeah, look, I sort of started with horses with polo cross when I was probably 15 and uh, played to a reasonably good level, I guess. Um, you know, the last of my polo cross breed of mares is actually with with Sky Bradford now. I hope she's hoping to make the Nationals in Albury in, in April. So that's sort of the last of that breed. And, yeah, look, I, I was pretty passionate about my horses and I just don't find the time now. Um, the kids' ride still show jump now, so I got out of the – that sort of sporty type horse and uh, been chasing the kids around for the last 10 years through pony club and, and jumping and, you know, they sort of jumped at Royals and done 
done all the things that they they need to as a parent you sort of give up on your own own gig and, and chase them around but yeah look you know i was very passionate about that body language side of the horses and which certainly comes over to the dogs you know and how we operate but i think um they sort of are very different animals from the point of view that one's a predator one's a prey animal and a horse is sort of happy if he's if he's got hay and his belly's full at the end of the day whereas that dog's really driven and is driven by instinct and that want to sort of control something so one can be certainly with the horse is probably more of a, a physical game at times whereas the dogs are very much a mental battle i think um yeah. and working around that mm. uh, cool you mentioned there um you work a couple of different you know a lot of cattle and um and sheep there before and being out at uh, Abbey and out there in western new south wales i imagine you do a bit of work as well yeah look we're probably once a month putting two or three hundred goats together you know we're not putting massive mobs but um yeah there's not too many rules on goats so we've got our goats pretty good now so we're um sort of taking the big end out of them they handle quite well but they, they test a dog for weaknesses and they test a human for weaknesses and strengths as well you know they're really um yeah they make you sharp and they, they really um you know they they sort of probably test that theory of of dogs being perfect a lot of the time i find rather than dogs be perfect they've just got to get there and i've certainly you know my dogs now are doing a lot more crossing than they would have once upon a time because they just need to and that's my job and i'm not doing a lot of trialing so yeah goats goats are testing but you know they they also it's a lot of stock handling i guess and you sort of learn to create the leader and leave them alone so have they influenced the dollar dog that um, you chase these days? Oh, probably not. Uh, you know, I think you certainly want a dog that gets to the front. Um, they've got to get to the head, but then uh, like a lot of these animals that are a little touchy, the less time you spend on the head, the better. So get on the head, get respect, and then get out of there as quick as you can. That's how I find it. And and um, But, yeah, I, I, I want to sort of head back to a little bit more strength. You know, I've gone probably a little on the pretty side and, and um, that real arky sort of mobby dog. And I'm, I'm heading there a couple of crosses. And the beauty of dogs are and breeding is that, you know, within three years you can be two or three generations down the track, can't you, because of the speed you can breed dogs at. Be quicker than horses, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. You know, we, you know, I come, when did, when did we sort of maybe three years ago now, I guess, and, here we are, I bought a pup off you, and uh, here we are, we've got Gren, you know, he's got grandchildren, hasn't he, as such? So yeah, that's, um, right. that's how quickly it can go. And I guess that can take you in a good direction quickly or it can take you in a poor direction quickly, and that just depends on making sure that you're working down the right track, doesn't it? Let's hope it's the better of the two, right? <laughs> well, hopefully, if, if it's a good track. <laughs> time, time will tell, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than the goat work, how do dogs make your day-to-day -day life easier? Oh, look, they, you know, this Western country here where we are is full of burrs and it's tough on dogs and, and it's really hard. You know, I need to be able to go out in what is, you know, not, not massive paddocks but reasonably big paddocks. We're on 30,000 acres here and, you know, I need to be able to go out and do a job on my own. And I, there's no job that I can't do around the farm on my own, whether it be in the yards or, or the paddock. And, 
you know, I've got to have a dog that's that's capable in the paddock. If I don't have anything here that's not capable in the paddock, and that has to be that way first for me. That's I've always said I want to be 70, 30, 70 paddock and 30 yard. Um, yeah, my the amount of yard work I do is not not a hell of a lot, but I still need a dog that's capable in the yards. But I I need a dog that can run to stock and that can cast and and get around sheep that are pretty runny at times. Yeah, right. So you know, like obviously they just tell us a bit about how your dogs make your life easier getting around and that. What drew you to the lines that you have to be able to do that work? Like what, what stood out like, when you first kicked off all that time ago? Well, I started I started with an old Scanlon bitch, man, and she was the most natural casting little bitch ever. And uh, I I sort of just kicked off down that line and you know, I then put what was a dog was Capri Ledge over her and he was probably a dog that was as good a dog still that I've seen. I think he was a beautiful kind dog on stock, but he'd he'd back rams in a race, you know, he'd cast. He did a bit of everything and he's probably one that slipped through the cracks a little bit um for Chris, but he 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 was a good dog in that you know he didn't probably get a lot of bit just because of the hands that he was in and he, he wasn't in um hands that a lot of people knew about. So he he was certainly he bred me Ripper and yep. sort of Ripper was the best farm dog I've had. He was smart and hard and um yeah since then I've probably gone a, a, a little softer and as far as not quite as much strength but um, so I, I guess I've I've always just wanted that that dog that could get to a point of control, like I talk about, you know, and and not have to do too much about it when it gets there. Yep. Mm. If there was something else you could bring into your pack. What we like? Why? What do you think they're sort of lacking? Well, like yeah. Well, like I said, I'm I'm actually you know, and I've got a couple of young dogs. Um, that we've spoken about that I want to go to for a bit more strength and I want to be able to make sure that, you know, a dog can bite a cow and a few things that I did have and these days the dogs will work cattle but they certainly aren't what I'd say is natural dogs that will bite and, you know, I always say that I think that bite still needs to be a last resort even on cattle. It's not the first resort. If it's your, if you go to your big guns yeah. first, you've got nothing left after, you know, but I certainly want to try and, add that little bit more power and um yeah it's a slow process you know you don't want to go too far one way of the center line or too far the other you know you can try and find that good average and try and keep the good things that you have but in, improve on them all the time mate um just off the side note there from dave turner um working about strength sorry that question just skipped as they come in um Mm -hmm. Dave, um, hey Dave, how you going? Um, how do cattle cross make as dogs? Would they bring that strength in? In do you think? Or uh, I, I think as in cattle dogs, as in uh, collies and things, is it not not or as in not not blues, as in collies, border collies. I'm guessing. Um, I, think, I think so. I think yeah. I think the one thing that you've got to be conscious of is bite. Um, and uh, some of the some of the cattle lines are certainly bred for bite. You know, you need you, they're no good without it, so that makes sense. But yeah, I think you've got to be really conscious that you don't, you know, bring bring something in that's going to be sort of contradictory to what you're, you're actually trying to achieve. And bite's one of those things that that yeah, you want to be very conscious of. So 
managing that and and it's not just uh, probably more importantly than us managing that i think it's more importantly that, that, that the dog can manage itself around bite because we can't always look after it can we and we can't always stop it from biting and you can muzzle dogs you can do things but if I think if they're tending to want to bite, they're not probably thinking about position as much as they should be. So that's probably my thing is that um, position first and, and everything else second. If you're in the right spot, it doesn't matter what you've got, you're probably not going to achieve what you, you should be achieving. Mate, talking about position mm -hmm. there, I from Isaac today, um, what does your training program look like? Well, it, it's probably... Uh, I'm probably, when it, in all honesty, a lazy trainer. Um, you know, I I I have got kids running around playing netball and dancing and and horsing and doing all these things. So my training regime is very sort of staggered. Um, but what it looks like mainly is that I I have I start on my young dogs on on a, a mob of quiet sheep, usually half a dozen. Um, and I want things under control. Uh, less, less out of control, the better. Um, and then we work up from there. I get a young dog probably once I get a call on a dog. As soon as I've got a call on a dog, it's I'm happy to take it to work. And I usually drop that young dog around a gateway somewhere so that I've got stock against a fence um, and I can actually hold those sheep against a fence. So that young dog gets to go at balancing to the gate. And then when the sheep go through the gate, I'm in a, in a position to stop that dog and call him to me and put it back on the bike. So, yeah, probably, you know, start them off at three months, um, get them to five months. Try not to do too much really between that stage from seven to eight, nine months a lot of the time. A lot of the time that you think you, you, you're going to, you know, train the hell out of this dog and actually you go backwards more than you go forward and, you know, I come up under Greg Prince and, and um, we all miss Princey. And it, one thing that he used to say was that if there's more to lose than there is to gain, well, then it's a good time to put it away. So if by whatever we're going to do with that dog today, if there's more to lose than there is to gain from that from the dog and from me, the dog's better off on the chain for the day or, or some lead training or dry work. So when you get to that point, it's a matter of identifying that and, and knowing your dogs and uh, and then being able to put it away. And remember that a lot of the time time spent in the cage, when you get that pup out, it, it might be, you know, you might put it away at seven months. And no one I say put it away, it doesn't get left in the cage, but it gets it gets taken out and about and a bit of dry work. You get it back out at 11 months and that, that, that dog will come out and it's ready to go. So they learn a lot from just having a break at times. You're talking about um, Princey and one of his quotes there. Like, there's a certain quote that um, you've drilled into me over the last few months. Do you want to share that with uh, all our listeners tonight? Yeah, yeah, this is the one where I put the trademark on it, is it, so you can't steal it? No, this, like oh, I said. Oh, mate, it's got a TM next to it already. I've done it. <laughs> I talk about is that um, uh, you've got me on the spot now. I've got to, I've got to remember it. Is that, yeah. Dogs, dogs don't learn a lot. People, animals, horses, nothing learns a lot while it's tired, but they learn a lot from being tired. That's the one. So if that makes sense is that so that at the end of the day, you know, when everyone's had enough, it's not the time to try and prove something to it. When it's tired, it doesn't learn much, but it learns a lot from being tired. So so that's I think that's a really good one that I, I use and I'm trying to drill into people. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I've never used that to anyone else, I promise. <laughs> that's, that's good, mate. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, think, I think that's really important. Um, and you can apply that to so many levels of the dog. You can apply it to ourselves, our kids, the whole, you know, the whole story, can't we, is that when, if it's that point, and at that point, it just comes back to Princey's quote, is that there's more to lose than there is to gain. So leave it alone, you know. Mm. No, very true, mate. Um, we've got a few different questions here. We're just trying to work There's in. one here from Wayne McMillan. Um, did you learn anything from horses that could be applied to dogs? Um, some of the people from the UK you spoke to years ago um, talked about the railing method, which was a horse training method. And he's heard that trainers in the US and UK tell him stories of, that they've learned some valuable lessons from cowboys and horse trainers. So, the, yeah, he's just wanting to know if you've found um, that you've learned anything from horses that could be applied to dogs. Uh, I mean, yes and no. I, I have from the point of view that understanding to to get, you know, that body around and like a talk, you know, and, and um, talk about getting that, that soft shoulder around and allowing not to be too front on the dog. So it very much works the same with horses. You don't want to catch a horse drop your shoulder, drop your eyes. So learning to manage your upper body, yeah, for sure. Um, but I think I think the two, certainly through repetition, you know, and, and, and pressure and release, they're all the same things that we all talk about. Um, but I think the big one is, is the, the real big one is it's a little, it's a little different for like the likes of your cutting horses um, and some of you may be your jumping horses, they're actually bred with instinct to jump and bred with instinct to chase a cow and cut. And, and so from that instinct point of view, that's the big difference from the dog to the horse. You know, the dog has got something in his brain, it's instinct, and once you turn that on, it's usually on, and it's on very strong in the best of the dogs. And, and there's a little there's a little fella up there that's telling that dog something, and at times... It might be contradictory to what the dog wants to do, but that's instinct, isn't it? That's what puts drive in dogs. So it's probably the big difference from in my mind. Um, and look, I don't get too complex with with those methods. I sort of have my method, and I try to keep it, you know, to a point as simple as it can, so that people can learn it. Because you know, dogs have sort of taken me around the world a little bit now to the US, and you know, I'd love to go other places, and it. You get over there and you see people do different things different ways and you've got to be flexible, I think, as a trainer to be able to suit a lot of different areas if you're really good at it. Yeah. It sort yeah, of doesn't, it doesn't exactly answer the question. And I, I think, yeah, I, I think probably, yeah, like I said, the instinct thing is the one big thing. And the other thing, I guess, from a physicality point of view, just quickly, is that a dog's eyes are set forward in his head and everything – is is forward to a dog what's behind them is really irrelevant it's the past whereas that horse or that cow where where actually the eye is set on the side of the head and you watch the ear flicking all the time they're actually working the back all the time that's why it's important for that dog to be good back there so so a dog is very much thinking forward from that from that prey type you know is trying to is trying to find something isn't it and it's trying to work something and dominate something and control something and from that fact, then it's really important that when we're behind a dog, is that a dog learns to trust us from behind because their their eyes are forward, and for them to for them to turn and look at us, they've got to turn with the head and look at us, and then they take their eyes off the stock. Whereas when I'm behind a cow, 
for it to, to look at me, it's simply got to flick its ear out of the way and it can see me. So the physicality of both is is very different. Mm. Yeah, so if Laura's my little sister and mum's my bigger sister, video um, on this horse guy not that long ago, do you remember who that was? No, it was this. I watched it, it was about an hour thing, and I'm not a real horsey person, but I can appreciate any training. And this particular bloke, he was training this guy, and the guy was having a problem with his horse bolting. And when they were mucking around with this horse, he was uh, toying with it, and um, it, the horse on the his left eye was getting on, he, was, he accepted the guy getting on the horse really good, but whenever the guy yeah. come around the right hand side of the horse, mm-hmm. He, um, the horse was always a bit touchy and he put that down to um, because he was so used to being approached from that side, the repetition, the repetition of, it. of it. And he said that yeah. um, cowboys yeah. have the best horses because, uh, or especially ropers because they could get on the horse from either side and they had the best balanced horses as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I suppose just going with there, how much do you think that we put into our dogs because of we might be left-hand orientated or right-hand orientated? That, and I know I just went left and right wrong myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I, think um, a, yeah I think that's a good point. I know that I feel I feel a lot more comfortable working a dog to that anti-clockwise side in a trial situation. You know, I like working that dog that way on my right side than I do more on my left side. Um, so, and it's funny, I like to count sheep coming from that, so coming from my right to my left. So I like to count sheep uh yeah from my right to left so that i'm counting you know it feels more comfortable for me coming past my right shoulder than it does for me coming past my left shoulder so it's something to be conscious of around your kennels and things too isn't it that you know we we tend to just put a dog in from that one side all the time and 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 be able to be pliable there i'm gonna laugh there because i'm a little bit anal getting my dogs in and out of my kennels um i actually wouldn't have thought that I actually step forward, if I'm putting my dogs in my kennels when I feed them and I open my door, I step forward into my kennel so my dog actually comes behind me and doesn't cross me. Um, So that way it gets used to when I'm opening a gate, when I'm trialling, that it comes behind me. And even when I'm at home, there's opening gates or wherever I'm going, I always have that habit. And I drill it into these guys a bit. Um, Because I just, if you can create that habit and repetition, well, you know, yeah. and yeah. let's be honest, like, when we go from out at your place, dogs are crossing this left, right and centre. But in that trial situation, we, you know, a big trip can come a pretty quick day um, with a couple of crosses. So, you know, that, that's one thing I, you know, I do. And I know it's one of my little perks, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think that no doubt I can, I used to be a lot more like that than I am now. But I, um, I think you just got to be careful too, though, doing some of those things that you don't, uh, that you stay out of your dog, that you stay out of your dog's head a little bit, you know, where you don't just get but but I mean, look, we all I, I can see the merit in that, mate. And and if things work for you, that's a good idea in my mind, you know. If things work for anybody, what no matter, no matter what dog we're running, I think that that's a, a great idea, you know. And if it's working, keep doing it, you know, be open minded, but yeah, keep doing it. But it's certainly something to be conscious of that we that we are working that that animal on both sides. Yeah. To, to be honest with you, I don't even re- notice I do it sometimes and someone's will be able to go, what, why do you always step forward and we won't let your dog in? I just, it's just a habit now. It, it's something with that horse dog question is that I, I did a school at, at Mudgee a couple of years ago and a young guy came up to me and he loves his horse and does a lot of drafting and 
was talking about, you know, releasing pressure off a dog and and part of that is being down and getting in dog land, you know, getting, we're, we're all up, you know, I'm six foot something and we're all up at our level and we don't tend to get down in their world and they're quite big and talk with schools about being able to get down there and get out in their world and spend a bit of time down there and take pressure off that animal. And he was really taken by that. You know, he said, look, I've done, he'd done other schools, done a quite a few other schools. And he said, he never really heard it put that way that we, because the physicality of a dog is so small to us, we tend to feel like, you know, it can be physical and we can apply pressure all the time. We, we forget that they're just like us. They, they, they get so much out of a pressure release. And the big thing is we all know that with a horse because that's how horses work, pressure and release, exactly how they work. Um, whereas a dog, a dog is more of a mental battle and it also works around pressure and release, but we, we feel like we don't need to release pressure off a dog as much, I think, because of the physicality of the thing and it's so it's a small, it's a smaller animal and therefore we can just load it up all the time. So it's something to be very conscious of as to how we manage our body and how we can release pressure off a dog there for a long time coming from a horse background that I didn't actually understand how to release that pressure off a dog because it wasn't mm. I wasn't sitting on top of the animal I, I didn't understand how I released that pressure but yeah you telling yeah. me to get down with the dog is that's when it sort of clicked in my head that yeah okay, I can do it that way like yeah well and it's this it's this it's this front on and it's our eyes and we tend to when we, when our teeth get gritted and something's going wrong we tend to eyeball them you know, yeah. so it's, it's, and look, I'm not, I, I do plenty of that myself. You know, I'm not going to come here and say, I don't eyeball them and I don't grip my teeth because I'm managing my temperament all the time, you know, but um, it's, it's about managing the upper body in, in a lot of those cases. And we can apply pressure quickly and we can also take pressure quickly off with that upper body and that front on approach. So we just had another question come through from Neno Moody. Um, Dave, you talk about dry work. What does this involve for a young dog? Well, well, dry work's any work off stock, I guess, basically. So when it doesn't have, so we want to have those young puppies. Um, you know, I don't do enough of it uh, running young dogs here, and it's something that I'm I'm doing more of now. But when I've got so many young dogs, but so it's it's basically doing our work on off stock uh, on a lead. It's putting that sit and stop and come. All those things that, uh, you know, that basic discipline um, is off stock. And some people some people do put dry sides on off stock, so they actually have them on a string. And they, I think some of the Kiwis do it that way. I think, you know, be other people a lot more, um, they would have a lot more of an idea than I do. But I think there are, you know, quite a few methods around that actually train dogs dry. So by that, actually put sides and things on without stock. So it's basically training with no stock. You have a couple of videos on your Facebook page of crew as a young pup doing some dry work, don't you? Uh, yeah, I did on a bit of basic stop work and a few things. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Mm. Do you think enough merits putting being put into um, having young pups on a leash and just teaching them like a simple come off or, you know, come just a, like how we all, you hear it all the time. Oh, I can't catch the pup, you know. Mm. Oh, I go work that dog, but I can't catch it. You know, or you know, you're speaking to someone and it's oh, I've got to go, I've got to I've been trying to catch this dog for half an hour now. Um, so to me personally, yeah. I think doing that stuff is part of building a bond with that that young animal to start with. Yeah, it's look, it is it's it's part of the connection, isn't it? You know, and and um it's certainly part of the connection. My situation here, you know, you're twenty plus dogs and you I'm sort of 
probably more of a breeder than I am a trialer these days. So you, you, you can be, if you're not careful, some can slip through the cracks. You don't do enough of that sort of off stock work. And there's, look, there's no doubt the more time you spend with them and the more quality time you spend with them, the, the better they're going to be. You know, it's the same as all these things with all these animals, all these, the kids, the same thing. You know, the more time I spend with them, the better off they're going to be. And, and it's simply, it's love and discipline, sure isn't that? it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like these, you know, hands, our hands deliver love. And I, I say, I probably sound weird when I say that, but we touch how we touch and how we go about that young dog, you know, how we touch our kids and how we touch that dog is very much delivered through hands. Um, so, you know, dogs love nothing more, do they, than you can do a bit of, and you can do a bit of work on a lead and you call them in and give them a rub. And then touch just reinforces. You can be, you've got to put pressure on, had a dog a little bit uncomfortable on lead, but then the release of pressure and that touch then takes all that away. And, and um, yeah, so it's really important that, uh, yeah, like I said, get down with them and, and, and you know, don't don't overdo the pat and the rub, but when, when something's good, let them know. They love, they love that kindness, and that's when you're really going up when they can feel that kindness coming from you. Mate, that question that probably um come ties in with our next question here from Jacob Ryan. Um, is there any mental or physical psychological activities you do with your dogs on or off stock, as in laying down pups and stuff? Um, look, I, do, I don't do um I don't do that in that I just don't find the time for oh, look whether I, and, and I'm probably lazy with that, you know. I think there's no doubt it works. I think, you know, probably Daniel, you're doing a bit of that. And, and I think Jake's oh, probably the master. Started. Yep. And Jake has probably the master. The last, last three or four months. Yep. Sure. yep. Look, all those things, if, look, guys, anything that's working well, um, dogs will respond to that and, and it works. There's enough of these people going around doing it. I, you know, I just don't. Like I said, I'm probably lazy with those things. I didn't come up with that method. I'm, I'm pretty much training a lot of dogs on the job when I get them there, you know. Um, but, yeah, the more of those things that you can do, and if you can find someone that's doing that and that can show you those things, go for it and, and yeah, and I'd embrace all those things. Hey, well, I've, I've got a pretty low um, tolerance for barking dogs. Like One thing that absolutely annoys the shit out of me, just dogs barking yep. in the camera yep. for no reason. Um, if you pick up a hose, my dogs will all get in their box pretty quick. Um, yep. But I have not... Um, had to hose a dog kennel, I'd say, in the last four or five months since I've been spending more time with my younger dogs um, yeah. on a lead and laying them down and just getting in their head a bit. I can just simply, yeah. you know, a possum might stir them or something and feel them at the moment. And uh, I might just give a quick whistle and a, and a quiet um, and, and that's it. It's off. And I think a few people might have seen recently, I've been teaching my dogs to bark on command at young ages and there's a video of Faith done there that the other day. And my theory behind that is, well, if I can teach them to bark on command, I can teach them to shut it off when I want to as well. Um, so if yeah, I know yeah. what a bark is or when to when to bark, when I want them to bark, they know when I want them to be quiet as well. What, what, what's yeah, your take yeah. on that? Oh, look, that, for sure. They understand it, don't they? You know, they, 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 they're allowed the freedom to bark when you ask for it and then when you shut them down, they're actually getting rewarded for, for shutting down. So the difference is is that is that you're not chastising them for the for the to keep them quiet you're actually rewarding them for them being quiet yeah so, I can have so I can have my candles without 
Yeah. So the rub. So the difference is, it's a different mindset. The rub at the end is actually the reward and the kindness. So, Correct. so they go, oh, this is great. When we be quiet, you know, we get a rub. And so, so you're actually doing exactly the opposite in a way, aren't you? You know, by by actually going about it that way. And the better the connection, you know, like I had Jilly that we lost eighteen months ago, and, and I had an awesome connection with her, you know. And you don't get that with with many dogs. I had that with Ripper, the same thing. You know, I just knew what I was thinking when we were doing the job. And um, the more time you get spending with those pups and you get that connection, the, the better they're going to be. And and like I said, they get a reward for doing the right thing, which is being quiet, you know. So it's a, it's a complete different mindset, isn't it? Well, 100%, mate. Mm. So there's just another question come through from Naomi White. What do you look for in a pup to work out if it's one to keep or move on or, like, not for yourself? Uh, um, distance, uh, you know, that X factor and a lot of the time uh, uh, temperament and distance. And like I said, I think another little saying I had, Daniel, with you was that, that the, the best stock person or stock handler and the best dog can achieve the same result from further back. So, so by that, I mean, we're still got to be able to do the job, but the, the pup that uh, shows me that natural distance and that stop and then that quiet come into sheep and actually trying to work sheep the way sheep want to be worked, not yeah. the way that the dog wants to work sheep. Um, you know, all those little things that I'm seeing, uh, yeah, I, I, want, I want a pup to be, I want a pup to be quite soft to be around. I don't want, I don't want a pup that's too hard headed from the from that temperament point of view where um the nature i want they're quite nice quiet nature i mean that's basically how he approaches me a little bit a little bit softer that's what i like but then the temperament is that drive to work and the trainability well then we want we're looking for temperament so if i ask something in that pup and and it tries really hard for me well then you know i'm thinking that i've got good distance um it's going to try hard and, and it's got a nice approach to sheep. Well, for me, I'm probably 80% on the way. If if yeah. I know the breeding and it's bred well, yeah. Mate, talking about your distance and, um, you know, way it approaches sheep and that there, um, we've got a question here from uh, Daniel Lanzo. How has getting a dog to cross helped in real work situations? Uh, it, it just means that a dog can get to a point of control as, as quick as it can, you know. And, and like I said, when I'm working, when you're working goats, it it's just got to, it's, you, you want a dog just to be in a point of control and be there. Otherwise, we might be somewhere else with them, you know. And um, I, I, the other thing that I, that I think allowing dogs to cross is that my system was very much, I used to talk about inviting a dog into this front on, front on you know, my front on presence. But... I want to, I want to, and watching some of the Americans and the Europeans, they're doing a lot more driving work. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere and give a school or I'm going to give advice or I'm trying to even myself as doing things well, I want a system that I know works really well in that situation. Um, so I want to be, I want to be less important to those dogs behind, behind them so that they can concentrate on their stock. The last thing I want them to do is be in front of me and then worried about where I am. I want them to be in front of me and worried about this stock. So, so that's probably the really important part is that when when they're in front of me, they're still watching stock, you know, because if, if something's going to go, you've got the right. For me, see, my system is that I probably don't have a, a good enough stop and that I'm not going to be someone that's going to stop a dog for half an hour and it doesn't leave that spot. I, 
want you to stop when I ask you to stop, but then if you need to go and do your job to get control, well, then you have the right to break that stop and go and go and do the job. So that's how I approach it rather than the other. I don't want to tell that dog to have to leave the spot. Mate, you've spoken about point of control a couple of times there. Um, do you want to explain you know, your philosophy on point of control and how you see that? Yeah, well, it's something that I've sort of been using. And I see it's about a bit, you know, in some of the pages, and that's a good thing, you know, because I think that a point of control is is not always sort of point of balance. So I think people get probably confused with balance being point of control. But point of control, like leaving a corner or when sheep move off a dog, is actually behind those sheep if we want the sheep to go forward. So basically it's where the where the dog or the handler's got to be be able to to achieve a movement and you know at times that might be working a wing and a dog being able to drift with the eye and work up and back slowly and hold its distance and allow that eye to walk like I talk about you know coming on to pressure and stock being able to come on to pressure not through pressure it's a very different concept going through it but so the dog can just carry that balance up you know where the, the the sheep are walking straight and the dog can hold a point so that point of control might be really forward on a mob if i get on a mob that's early, you know early on they're running it's probably quite well forward the dog's going to have to think further forward whereas the further we go the more tired they get the further it works to the back and the point of control comes to the back but so it's important in your training to to work stock out of corners a dog has got to learn not to rush out of a corner because the point of control, you actually want those sheep to leave the, leave the corner. So I want that dog to learn to wait in a corner and trust that stock can leave the corner. And it's really important that, that dogs learn to trust when sheep leave that they don't have to panic, especially heading-type dogs. Otherwise, yeah. you never hold them off the head. Yeah. yeah. That's another question that just come through on that topic. Do you think sheep in a mob have a light side and a heavy side depending on the weather and terrain? Um, that is, they're more, that is, they will run more freely on one side than another. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, no doubt that stock will work into the breeze a lot better, you know. Um, you know, you, you'll get a mob of ewes and lambs that will not walk with a big wind behind them, but you get a wind in front of them and off they go and you just, you know, like I talk about your roll of smoke and you work from tree to tree and you just leave them alone. But um, we had a, an a incident here, or not an incident, we were trying to count some young sheep through a gate about eight or two and a half years ago. And we were trying to do it from the left side and they wouldn't, it wouldn't. It just wasn't happening. You know, we'd get, we'd get 10 and then we'd get another five and then we'd wait again, we'd get another five and we'd want to get 20. And I did say at the time at the station, and I said, why don't we just switch these stock over? All we did was swap them to the other side, the right-hand side of the gate. Flow, flowed through, we counted them through a piece of pie. So stock handling is very much be pliable, be adjustable. If something's not working, have a look around. You know, there might be a gate further up the fence into the breeze that we can use. There might be, rather than muster a paddock anti-clockwise, you know, always muster a paddock here into the wind. Um because I want to be able to, I want to be able to work stock up into the breeze. If I muster downwind, and if I have to leave stock and go and check the rest of the paddock, those sheep will then turn and come back into the breeze. So if I keep working into the breeze, if I leave, have to leave sheep and go somewhere else, my sheep that I've left are always going to work into the breeze. So it's it's crucial that in bigger paddocks in this country that you know we get a southerly and everything's in the south. We get a northerly and everything's in the north and 
Well, um, sheep, yeah. sheep don't have big fangs, do they? So their only defence mechanism is being able to sight or smell something and That's working, right. into, working into the breeze, like you'd yeah. assume that they're yeah. going to smell something. I oh, know chasing goats, um, myself and other places a while ago, they're like, as soon as the goats, the, goats, the mob smelt you, you were gone. You, didn't matter how far they were, like, you just didn't stand a chance mm -hmm. trying to get out there. Yeah. By the time you got to a gate, they were gone. Which actually yeah. brings me well, to another... Sorry, I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. And the, the, the good, the good dogs will actually scent goats really well. You know, they're like, yeah, they they'll smell a goat, they'll smell a mob, and you know, and just I drop them off like a, you know, like a scent dog now and follow them. And yeah, so the good dogs will work the wind as well. They'll smell sheep as well. You know, joy. Yeah, so they will certainly do that. Here's another one for you, mate. While we're talking about you know gates and whatnot, why do you guys out west? have gates in the middle of a fence line and not in the corners. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to move stock around in corners rather than having a random fence, a gate in the middle of a fence? No, because you think about a corner, what, what's a corner? A corner's a, corner's a point of pressure. Yeah. So, so if stock want to go and lay in a corner, that's fine. But if I've got to drive them into a corner, it's actually a point of pressure. Um, so, so, to actually put stock into a into a corner is actually driving stock into a point of pressure for me. Whereas, a, see, in a breeder breeding operation, I think it's crucial that that we train and we educate our females to come under pressure. Um, and once again, not through pressure. I always go forward at a gate, and my stock come through me, and I'm at the gate. I get off my bike, park my bike, cows or, or sheep, and I try to be on foot. And lambs are learning to come through. If if those dogs weren't there, those sheep would go away from the gate. But they come to the gate because the dogs are holding them to me. As soon as the lead starts, I want the dog to stop. And the lead draws the back. It's like funneling water through a canyon. If the, the tighter the canyon, the more we get a flow, and the, the faster we get a flow. Well, well, as that goes, as that flows faster, it actually draws water in behind. It's just like moving stock through a gate. As we get a flow and we, we squeeze that gate, it actually draws head in, heads in from behind us. So we're actually we're actually moving the lead to draw the tail, and and those calves are learning to handle me on foot. Mum's going through a gate. I get off, and you know, there's nothing worse than going to try and count a mob of cattle or go and look at a mob of cattle, and someone hops out of the ute. And everyone says, oh, don't get out of the ute, they'll all run away. Well, not if they're know, not if they're used to me on foot. So when I wean cattle, you know, we get out there and I'll park a bike and I'll put them on a fence line and I'll walk them past me, count them up and down the fence line so they're used to me on foot. And they're used to coming through my pressure and they're being rewarded as they go through me by leaving my pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Mm. I was never mm. thought of it like that, mate. Mm. I, just, I just look at a guy and go, geez, it'll be easy to drive them in the corner and punch them through there. Yeah, no, see, these I'll use here. We come to a gate. I'll go and open a gate, and these I'll use will start walking to a gate from 300 metres. Well, you know, they'll spot a gate, and they just walk to it. And when they do, the park the dogs. I'll go and park. As they get to the lead, I just go and be at the gate. As they get there, they drift through, and I'm there, and they're learning to come through me. The thing is, if I get a blockage at that gate, well, I'm there to do something about it. If those sheep go through that gate or those cattle go through that gate and go 10 metres and stop, I'm there to actually start that lead. I can't do it from behind. So it's crucial that I'm, I'm working the gate all the time in the sheepyards, the same thing. I'm at the front and my dogs are bringing to me. They might come up to me and go back through, but I'm doing the front work. 
Just yeah, I feel, oh, I just imagine from what you said there, if you're at the back, it's just more pressure on, on a, you know, if you can call that a hydraulic lock because like nothing's going anywhere. How do you how do you get to the front if you're at the back? Correct. You've got to go past everything, and as you go past everything, they turn around. I mean, you can you can run a dog up over them for sure and bring them back through, but if I'm already at the front when they start. I don't have to pass any heads to get to the front, do I? If, if they start while I'm there, those those stock can all see me unpredictable and they can then come past me. If if I have to come past heads to go to the front, well they all they all lay back. You watch what happens when you you go to the front of a mob and you turn your shoulder and give them a soft shoulder, then you turn and face up and all their heads rise. You watch a mob of even young leaners or sheep, they all look at you for a second, they might go again. Yeah. So I wanna be I wanna be at the front when they start. I had something smart to say there, mate, but I'll keep my tongue. <laughs> or throw my head up looking at you. Yeah. Are you sure you're not just looking at your head, mate? Yeah, what's going on there? <laughs> they could be looking at this far. That's what I said to a mate in Western Australia today. I got a good head for radio. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just been another question come through with what we uh, mentioned earlier about not letting a dog beat the head for too long and pushing it with how it was, with it. How has this benefit? your dog's development in real work not letting them beat the head for too long well well with a heading dog you they want to be there and you you it's not efficient having a, a dog i mean some of the some of the brahmin cattle and some of these sheep are actually taught you know with lead dogs and that, that a dog will actually trail out and lead and it gives them something to follow but for a lot of the european sheep a lot of what most people do um the more touchy the stock, the less time I want to spend on the head, basically. I need to be there, get control and get out of there and then be there and get it. So it becomes a timing thing, you know. Um, but I don't want to be over-controlling there because you, you've you got that those animals that are trying to go somewhere. So we want to allow them to go somewhere. We don't want to shut them down too much. And, you know, those dogs have got to learn to relax on the tail. I talk about that back V. Um, and that's why I use a stick sometimes to, to be able to demonstrate that to people. And and a dog's going to spend 90% of its time within that back V, so they've got to learn to be able to be back there and relax back there. And stock, sheep especially, not so much cattle, but sheep have got to really learn to trust the dog behind them. If you're standing behind me with a great stick and you belt me in the ear, there's a good chance I'm going to want to turn around and look at you. And what's one of the basic fundamentals of the, the low stress guys is uh, that, that animals move in the direction they're facing. So if I want a sheep to be going away from me, I don't want to be belting him in the ear too often with a, with a stick because I want it to forward. It's like loading a horse in a horse float. The last thing I want to do is have someone up behind him with a great stick. I want him thinking forward, not behind. That's where his mind is. Same when, you use, when you're training, you use uh, shepherd's crooks too, don't you? Yeah, for sure. The the uh, yellow, yeah, the yellow crooks. They look. They come from Prince, you know. Um, they're they're really well weighted. Um, they're something that I can hang on a rail and leave them there. Um, you know, I just find that they're not everybody's for the method of using a stick, but they are very well weighted, and you can pretty much land them where you want. Um, you can also, when you use the tool, them you can clap them together and make a bit of noise, just a little bit similar to the whip sort of method and things. And you know, you want to be careful about applying pressure because you got to remember to release what you apply. Um, but certainly, there, yeah, they are very good. I'd recommend anyone to 
um, to grab some of those if they can. I took a couple in my bag to America and left them over there with Billy Boy. So there's, uh, yeah, there was a bit of a donation for him. I might have baited you there, mate. Um, they're actually available now through the Australian stock dog, uh, Working Stock Dog magazine. So if uh, our merchandise player is there, mate, just jump on board. We've got a few for you. There's no doubt about you. I'll have to get on and buy a few more. <laughs> but I thought I'd drop it. Mate, um, Rob Clarkson has asked, can you teach a dog to work out of sight in hilly, steep country, or is this just in the drive of the dog not to give up and leave his stock? Um. Yeah, I think, I think if you're a really good trainer and you want to spend hours, you know, you look at the Kiwis there probably and, and some of the the um, the people in Europe and, and what, you know, the, the, the um, England and things there, they're probably working dogs in those situations pretty regularly and that's through training. I think that certainly, you know, I used to work a lot of steep country at the back of Cooler there and the tops and the really good dogs that have driven that. But once again, it comes down to, in that situation, um, a dog work, like I talk about a little bit, a dog being able to work stock the way stock want to be worked, not the way the dog wants to be worked. Because when it's out of sight, it, you know, it comes down to distance, natural ability, um, the dog being polite to a point, you're still going to be able to get a job done. But if you're impolite, you're, in, you're too pushy, well, there's no way any of us can correct it, you know. So it's really important that that, that animal has distance, and like I talk about that, it actually is trying to work stock from their point of view, not the dog's point of view, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does, mate. Got a, another one here from um, Bob Kerfoot. Um, how have you incorporated it? How do you, how do you oh, a young dog to walk on to stock? As in, as in a walk up? Yeah. So a couple of methods. You, like, once again, look, this is all comes back to Princey's method and you know really the like a lot of us are uh, sharing what he's developed and so a lot of what I do to start with is in the race is in is in a sheep race and so I put that walk up so we'll get a few sheep in there and I get in there with him and it's on a lead so it's controlled um we just basically walk it in give it a rub when it's in close you know could also do the same thing in a corner if you haven't got a race you can put him in a corner the problem within a corner that is if your sheep can get away. So the other way you could do it is possibly, you know, have a few sheep in a, a little pen in a corner and we start out wide. We have our dog beside us and that dog learns to walk in and on a line. It's pretty important that if you're going to teach your dog to walk up, that it walks up on a line because there's no point in me trying to come in on, you know, on a sheep the dog wants to come in there and actually fades off pressure. So what a lot of dogs will do if they don't have that strength, they'll actually come into a point and the eyes start looking for somewhere to go because they're fading off pressure. So when you do that, try and make it straight so that that dog comes straight in. When it gets in close, make it comfortable. You know, to start with, try not, if your dog's a little weak and you're trying to build it up and build confidence, just come into the point where you can start to feel that dog lay back on the lead and feeling the pressure, give it a rub. You know, you might drop down, get in dog land again, drop down there, give it a rub, make it comfortable, and then start again, take him back out and start again. Same thing in the sheep race. So so in and out and when the dog's ready you basically do the walk up and the out at once so the the walk up is taught and then with the rake and the, the string you can actually teach a dog to back off but the out is probably a dangerous move for probably 90 percent 95 percent of people because a lot of the time it's probably done at the wrong time and in the wrong way and it can confuse dogs and most dogs don't enjoy walking backwards 
Yeah, and I think, and just keeping a dog, especially a young dog, out to start with, like uh, a lot of people look at myself and they go, oh, why do you let your dog work so close to the sheep? I go, because personally, if you have a young dog and you're always pushing it out, how can you ask it to come in later? Like, it's got to be comfortable. For my own personal thing, I, I like to have my dogs comfortable working inside close and then mm -hmm. push them out rather than having pushing them out and then asking them to come in later. Oh, yeah, oh, look. It's dangerous not to be able to let a dog be comfortable in tight, you know, and that's I've got Crewy at the moment. It's something I'm working on with him, you know. He's got a lot of stuff I like, but he's just got to learn to, his approach to be better, you know, and um, that's a slow process. You know, a lot of these three sheep guys do that two or 300 times before they get it right. They'll literally do it, you know, every day for every second day for a year and a half till they get that dog comfortable coming in and they know and that's why i talk why i have that dog beside you to start with you come in because i want to learn that that dog's got to learn to trust me i want it to learn to trust me so as it comes in i'm coming in with it so that, so i'm you know i'm there with it and the dog is actually feeling me the whole time good dog soft tone you know all these things are all working into its into its mind to, to make it comfortable with me with a nice kind tone. Yeah, yeah. So mm. Jacob Bryan is asking, what were some other really good things you took away from Princey and how have you incorporated them into your own program and why? I look, just, it was funny, we were sitting at the Ningen trial when we had the, the three sheep trial years ago with Gary and I was what I said, it's funny watching Greg I learn more watching him walk his dog around the arena to, to have another run than I do watching him on the ground because his dogs just loved him, you know, like he was God to his dogs. And I battle with that because of my temperament, you know. And I used to say the same, just to talk to him about that. You know, he used to tell me to keep on smiling, you know, and that was his way of trying to make it better. But um, he, the beauty about Greg was he kept it pretty simple. Um, and you know, we talk about language around, you know, for us it's sides, for some of the Europeans and the Americans it's flanking commands and things. And I like to think of it as steering. So, and when I'm doing schools, you, you can hold your hands out so you can see like you got them on a steering wheel. And it doesn't matter which way you're facing. A lot of people, when they put it on, they'll forget their command. So whatever we're steering to, the, to my left, you know, that's my back. It doesn't matter whether the dog's behind me or in front of me. If I hold me up, you want to, you want to think about which way that dog's got to go with your command. Tip your hands that way, like you're steering a car, and it's the direction it's got to go. A lot of people get confused. Should I go left? Which way am I going? Well, hold your hands upright. If I steer that way, that's where the dog's going to go. Whether it's facing me or not facing me, or whether I'm facing it or not. So, it, Greg, yeah, like I said, Greg was just uh, he loved dogs. You know, he genuinely loved dogs. And um, I wish I could love dogs as much as Greg would, but I never, I never will. It's not part of me, you know. And um, but so that's probably I probably haven't answered the question exactly. But he was a pro, you know. The thing about Princey was is that he wouldn't go on a ground if he didn't know he could do it. And and that's the big thing. A lot of us go out there half cock. Greg wouldn't do that. He, he if he went out there, he knew he could do it, and he mightn't be able to do it today. And he'd walk off. But I guarantee the next time he come out, he could, you know, and that's what he was. He was a pro. Mm. Mate, um, you mentioned a bit about training there. Like how often do you um, hold your working days, your, your working dog schools, and what do you personally get out of it? Oh, look, I'm probably only doing, 
you know, three or four a year. I, I do all the Edulabra work with the Jackaroos, which I, I find really rewarding. You know, I've done that for a long time. I've got a still got a big affiliation with Cam, the general manager at Edulabra. And, you know, seeing the young guys come through is pretty awesome. They look up to me and they love their, their dog stock days. Um, you don't do a school without learning. You know, I love helping people and I, I, I hate talking myself up, I guess, but I hope I'm quite good as an educator in that role. Um, Laura can answer that for me. She, she's <laughs> been there. But, you know, I think some people can probably um, help people. You know, some people can work dogs and not, not train people and, and some people can, can train. And, yeah, I, I don't do a school without learning something, taking something away every weekend, you know, and it's really motivating to see somebody get something. And, and, and like I spoke to Jan Prince about this, I talked to her a little bit, and she... She said Greg did it. He wanted a better life for dogs, you know, and I guess that's fundamentally hopefully why a lot of us do it. We want a, a better life for dogs and, and a better life for people that are trying to achieve something. And I try to incorporate a lot into what we've spoken about tonight, into that concept of, you know, stock handling. Yep. So yep. is there anything you'd like to see in the way people handle dogs in Australia? Like where do you think we can improve? Well, uh, I don't, I, I don't really know. I guess probably probably the the best way is probably Jakey's on track, you know, Jake Nolan with his method in being in the in New Zealand and really, like you've spoken about, Daniel, you see that the, the benefit of um, getting in their mind and, and working along that way and less physicality, you know, that doesn't the day that those days are gone where we need to be overly physical, you know, and um yeah, it's, it's got to be a mind game, you know. Yeah. What about on a side note of that, mate, like stock handling versus dog training? Are you uh, yeah, look, for me, it's stock first. Um, that's what we're doing, aren't we? You know, we're, we're, we're hopefully we're all working dog, but we're working stock. And there's no point you coming having the best trained dog in the world if you don't know where to put it. Um, there's also no point in you knowing exactly where to put it if you can't put it somewhere. So one goes with the other. But but for me, you can have the best. And and I guess I think there's probably a couple of young fellas that are right on the, the edge of, you know, that can really train a dog that have probably softened from the stock point of view that are really thinking about their stock handling and, and just doing enough. That, like the secret to good stock stock handling is just do enough. Get a result and leave it alone. And that's what that's what makes stock good, you know. That's what makes dogs good. What makes horses good? Get the result and leave it alone, and, and don't keep, you know, be able to take pressure off. So, for me, you know, I, I look after a breeding operation here. Or you've got a heap of sheep for someone else, and that's my priority. And like dogs are a massive part of it. I can't do it without dogs, but without the stock, and without good stock, you know. But good dogs make good stock, you know, it all it all ties in, doesn't it? Yep. And we've got a question here from Kim Wilkie. At what stage uh, in your training program did you introduce a whistle? Uh, is this age-related or ability-related? And what commands do you put on a whistle if you use it? No, it's I, – I use – then I've got my voice whistle. I don't use the, the – well, I shouldn't be, you know, you're, you guys are – we got the best whistles. We get that. <laughs> edit, edit. Yeah, here we are. So, but in all in all honesty, they are they're you know 
that's why you're trying to sell. That's why you're selling because they are certainly um, the beauty of those are is that it's a more digital sound, right? And the, the more digital we can make the sound, my whistle can have variation, whereas those whistles it can be a perfect sound, can't it? So, but early on, voice command, whistle command, you know, side command for me is back, back. It's a, it's the same thing with the behind command. It's one. It's both at the same time. I don't. I don't want to spend hours teaching him my voice command and then teaching my my whistle command. So so then we've got to test that though. You know, I might work them off the off the voice command a few times and then I'll stop that and then I'll put the voice away and then I'll try my whistle command. Um, so the whole time we're testing it. So we're working one and we're working the other. And you know, a lot of the time I'm in close, I'm I'm working voice and at distance you're working, but I. I would suggest that you don't try to make that too complicated. I think that um, there's no reason why you can't incorporate them both pretty much at the same time. Yeah. A bit well, earlier, you talked. To, sorry, I was just meant, a bit earlier. You mentioned about your own temperament, and you think that that restricts you a bit. The training. Do you find that yeah. when you're ramping up a bit, you go to a whistle or command to try and get um, yeah, that, I um, think. Well, I think it's important because the whistle doesn't come with tone, does it? And that's the beauty of whistle. So that's the one thing to be managing is that, you know, um, no can be no, or it can be no, you know, kind of, so, so it can be really big around that, whereas a whistle doesn't come with those same tones, so it tends to not carry as much emotion, you know. And yep. for me, the, be the, the best trainers have the least emotion to a point, you know, um, not saying some good, really good trainers aren't emotional, but I think the one that dogs don't understand emotion, you know, they don't understand why one day we're happy and why one day we're sad. It means nothing to them. So we've got to really they just, they think just know that we're that. sad or we're happy. Yeah, they feel that, but they yeah. don't understand emotion, you know. They don't understand why Dave Dave's off his chops now and then 10 minutes later he's all happy again. To them, to them that, that shuts them down, you know. It takes work out of them. So... Managing that, managing emotion is really important. And like I, yeah, like I said, I think the ones that are probably the best at it, at it probably manage their emotions the best. Not saying they don't have emotion, but they certainly manage it the best, especially under pressure. We're, we're all good when nothing's happening, but when we're loaded, that's when we when it comes out, doesn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. Mate, the way um, Jackie looks after you up there, mate, you'd have to be a good good emotion all the time. I've seen. Well, what I'm, I'm fat and shiny. <laughs> <laughs> what else we got here, Laura? Um, Dave, you don't do a lot of trialing. Um, but do you have a favourite trial, and, and why would that be? Oh, look, I, I guess you know our local trials probably my favourite from the point of view that they're sheep that I, I'm used to working, and I think they test a natural dog. You know, um, I think they're quite runny sheep, and 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 they test whether a dog can find that point of control, and the one that can't quite get there is usually showed up, you know, somewhere along the line. But probably my, my biggest trial memory is, you know, I did pretty well with Russell uh, 2013 at the National, but then I had Jilly, who was my favourite, you know, and I had, I'd probably been on the ground once with her and I got to Karkor and got to the pen. I think I'd done one trial in about three years with the drought and I wasn't brave enough to let her put him in the pen, you know, and she had him there and, 89 would have been, I think, second or third into the final and right up there. And she was awesome. So that's probably, because I don't have her, that's probably my favourite memory. You know, I, I just, 
you know, timing's a big thing, isn't it? You know, and um, I I wasn't I wasn't doing enough trials. It's like playing cricket or footy. We can all hit a, hit a ball in the nets or or train as hard as we like, but until we're under the pressure in the game moment, um, we need we need game practice, don't we? You know, so that's probably my favourite my favourite memories. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome, mate. I think Laura's got a question here, do you? No, that's no, all right. Okay, um, cool. Is there one trophy or accolade that you would like to win and have it on your mantelpiece, or have you already won that one? Oh, I've won them all. Not <laughs> 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 the ones at home, mate. No, we're talking about the ones around the ground. Look, I, I'm not driven by that, to be honest. You know, I like I speak about, I guess I'm – I'm probably – I would rather breed 10 dogs that win nationals than I would win 10 nationals myself. I I probably find that a lot of the time I see that winning probably doesn't do people a lot of good with it from that human factor, you know. I think that probably ribbons create monsters. You see that in Pony Club, Laura, don't you? You know, I used to yeah, well, joke about all the time and I think that it's probably – from true. having all the ribbons hanging around here, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And there's nothing like winning. You know, we all love to win. There's no doubt about that. But I'm not motivated by that. You know, I had eight dogs out of um, out of 16 dogs in the final in the 2016 National here. Um, a lot of them went back to Russell. But there was eight dogs that I'd either bred or were out of one of my bitches in the finals at the National. I think that's probably, probably my biggest accolade is doing that because I don't – I think that would be a big achievement to do again from anybody, you know, and a lot of that was on the back of Russell. I've got to give him credit for that. But, yeah, for me, that's probably that's probably where I, what I get the most pleasure out of. Smart it, mate. Mate, where do you believe uh, is Dog Talk spot in our community and uh, where can we help our members? Oh, look, it's I mean, it's providing them an awesome service, isn't it, that this is – there's a lot of people out there that are learning from this. You know, let's educate as many people as we can and let's make stock better and let's make dogs better, you know. And, yeah, I hope that this, you know, gets bigger and bigger for you guys who have had quite a bit to do with it coming up with you in discussion. And, I, you know, I'm really excited for you. And um, hopefully at some point it becomes quite a commercial venture, you know, and um, I hope that people support it with some training vids of both stock handling and, and, and training dogs. You know, how you go down that path, we'll have to see where it goes. But, yeah, look, I think that anything that gives people a voice and lets young and old, you know, enjoy people and, and get to meet people, you know, there's people that I won't meet overseas that, that get to interact with me and I get to interact with other people in the same way, you know, just as Jamie was on last week, you know, and, so I think that, yeah, that's pretty awesome. But you just touched on um, a, another thing there on training and helping people. And we did, we've got a stack of questions that have come through tonight. So I'd like to thank all our viewers. Um, but we are mindful as well that, you know, we've taken up a lot of everyone's time. But Laura, do you want to ask that question? Um, we've just had a question. Do you think people are overdoing it with whistle commands? And do you think that training in such a way takes away from the instinct? That's from uh, Randall Finchman. Oh, look, you listen to Vernon McClashan when I had the pleasure of watching him work a dog in, in Tassie in, I don't know, 2008 or nine. Um, It was awesome. You know, I was I was blown away. I was confused, but the dog 
did everything he asked, you know, and I, I don't know that I don't want to be that complex, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to judge anyone on something that works. I think, yeah, I think it can be too complex for sure. But, but if people get results, well, I'm not going to argue with anyone that gets good results. So yeah, I, I think it's just keep it simple, stupid, isn't it? You know, and if, um, if I ask you to move left and you move left, if I ask you to move out and you move out or move in, well, that's enough for me. And um, how people want to do that, they're, 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 yeah, that's up to them, I guess. But but keep it as simple as possible. For for uh, for ninety nine point nine percent of people that are probably going to go on a ground or going to handle stock, you know, a good left, a good right, and a stop with a dog that's of reasonable ability is probably going to do most people. Yeah, no, hundred percent, mate. Um, if there's one person you want to see us sit down and do a Q&A with, who would that be and why? Well, can I, I, I'll have a bit of a think about this if I say a few. Probably one that really comes to mind is Jimmy Loose, um, or as yeah. I call him, Big big Loose Jim. Um, <laughs> but, no, Jimmy Loose, you know, he's been there, done that. I probably talk, I haven't spoke to him for maybe 12 months, but he's won everything there is to win. He's been across all breeds, you know, he's... He's, yeah, handled stock. He's three sheep. He's was start of the yard. He's bred dogs. And, yeah, I think Jimmy's a really interesting character. I love having a yarn to him. Um, another one probably then is um, is Johnny Roston, uh, who's a collie man who's got an incredible mind. I love the way John thinks. I always remember he judged the National in Queensland and there was a question asked going into the yard and, 99% of judges would have just answered the question, but he wasn't quite sure how he wanted to answer it. And he just said, just give me a couple of minutes to think about that. And we went through the yards and when we walked back out, he'd made up his mind. So, you know, that for me is a really, I, I like the way his thought process is. And, and from an emotional point of view, I'd love you to be able to get uh, Jan Prince because I love Prince's message to be out there and, She's an awesome lady, and I also think, you know, Jan and, and Johnny White together, I think it'd be a, a wonderful chat across the table. Yeah. Um, and maybe you guys can do that live somewhere and actually go to them. But I think that, yeah, they'd have some some awesome stories to tell about Johnny. He's, he's a great man, Johnny White. He loves dogs, and, and and he would interact really well with Jan. And, yeah, that would be, you know, from, from tugs at the heartstrings, that would be the story I'd love to hear, you know, from that point. Yeah. yeah. No, anywhere we could stay out that way. <laughs> oh, well, I know, I know a few places. I'll have a yarn to a few people for you. Yeah, that's all right, mate. Just find the roughest place you can find for me. Yeah, I'll find a ball bath. <laughs> yeah. No, mate, um, obviously there's some pretty respected names that you just threw up there, so that would be, it'd be fantastic to be able to get out and, and speak to, to some of those people if they'll have us. Mm. Uh, if any of them are listening or someone out there, is listening tonight that is knows these people personally and they'll be happy to give us some time. Uh, Laura and I are happy to put on the case, um, whether that's through phone or be there traveling. sitting, traveling oh, yeah. in, sitting in their lounge room. We're COVID jabbed, so you know, that's all cool. No, no doubt about it. Oh, I'll have a go, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you've obviously spoken about a lot tonight, and I know you've still got a lot more to give. Would you be interested in coming back on again one day soon? Oh look, I'm you know if people if people are interested and you guys uh, are willing, you know I'm I'm more than happy to to get on and and do my bit. Um, 
yeah, I think that the more support, the better. And um, I, I think, you know, yeah, if the people are happy, we'll let the people be the judge, I guess, and 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 go from there, you know. Yeah. All right, cool, mate. Will we get into the pointy end of the night, mate? Oh, I hope you had your judging hat on there today. I, don't, I couldn't hear a sheep clicker. So, mate. <laughs> 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 Mate, um, time to give away a bag of Enduro um, Plus working dog food. Must must be in Australia, so I think it'll be pretty hard to uh, send the drone overseas at the moment. Um, yeah. What's the verdict? Well, I, I guess, uh, Jacob Ryan asked a couple of questions, didn't he, and a couple of pretty good questions. So he's probably it was probably out of here nano with the dry work question, but I yeah I, I guess um, I'll probably. Have to give Jake a run. Geez, that that would be a third of his body weight in the bag of feed, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll make no comment there. <laughs> Jacob, if you just mind uh, messaging the page just so we could get that sent off to you, that'd be great. Um, we'd like to thank you, Dave, for jumping on and having a chat with us tonight. I have one last question. If you could, if you had to choose between fighting twenty ducks. The size of horses or one horse the size of a duck, what would you choose? Well, I've had a little think about, little think about this and me being me and needing a challenge, I think I need to fight the 20 ducks the size of a, the size of a horse just to be different. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a bit of leg under you there, mate, so you'll be able to get a few of those good karate yeah. kicks happening. I could just imagine that. Yeah. I, 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 um, if you ask my wife about the... The horse that takes on a challenge, she'll understand why I picked that one because I seem to. Uh, my brother always used to say that I always seem to get the out of control dogs, kids, and horses. So, yeah, and before we sign off again, I'm just going to uh, mention um, once again, um, you know, the Black Dog Institute, our One Foot Forward, I think yeah. it's called. Get on board um, our page. Like I said, if you you can join the team join, or donate join, up to you. Yeah, whatever. Like, well, donate with your pockets or your feet, what, either or. Uh, and if you're joining our team, make be, you know, keep spreading it around to um to your friends and get them on board. Like, the more the merrier. It's it's for a great cause. Um, something that we seem to be very passionate about within the working dog community is mental health. So let's get on board with that. Um, and on that note, please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you and have a good night.